Good morning. <clears throat> Joseph is uh, 39 years of age when uh, his brothers get the big reveal. If you've been with us, you know that uh, Joseph had 11 brothers. Ten of them envied his father's favoritism, uh, the special love that his father Jacob had for Joseph. And the brothers saw Joseph coming, and they threw him in a cistern. They sold him into slavery. They never saw him again for 22 years, and when they did see him, they didn't recognize him because although he was sold as a slave into Egyptian uh, custody, he rose up in the house of his uh, master and lord, Potiphar, and from there he ended up in jail again, and the king, the pharaoh, had thrown a couple of his uh, special attendants into jail, and there Joseph divined or interpreted their dreams. Later, they introduced Joseph to Pharaoh because Pharaoh was having dreams that disturbed him. The whole land was uh, kind of routed for someone who could tell him the meaning of his dreams. Joseph did that. Joseph uh, explained that the country big swaths of the world were going to be hit by a, uh, a terrible, very fierce and severe drought for seven, for seven years, but they were going to be preceded by seven years of abundance. So he advised the Pharaoh in the light of that interpretation to take certain measures to prepare during the seven years of abundance that they might survive and even flourish during seven years of severe drought. It was during that time that Jacob, his father up in the land of Canaan, sent the boys down to Egypt to buy grain during the drought because they were severely hit. And it was in that visit that they came to Joseph and they didn't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognized them. And uh, with a few hijinks out of the way, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and they had a big hug fest, a big homecoming. And that led to the whole clan, the whole clan making their way to Egypt because, of course, they returned then to Canaan with the food. Uh, they brought their father down. They told the, their father who they thought, who thought that Joseph was dead. They told him he was indeed alive. He was the vice pharaoh. There was none more powerful than Joseph except Pharaoh himself. And so everything had been placed into his hands and care. And so they all made their way down. And uh, there, the father, the brothers, their families, their flocks, their, their cattle, Everything makes their way down to Egypt. And uh, they have a, an audience with the Pharaoh. He introduces his brothers. And then he brings Jacob to, to meet Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh asks Jacob, How old are you? 
And Jacob says, I'm 130. Now that's very interesting because when he dies, he's 147. And it is upon his death that we turn to chapter 50. 147 minus 130 is 17 years. And it's been 17 years since the brothers were happily reunited. Just try to kind of fathom that. For 17 years, they've lived in Egypt in the abundance and the well-being that, that Joseph has provided. He's taken care of his family. And they've lived in Goshen, and they've herded their flocks and their cattle. But now their father has died at 147. And that's where we commence. But it's interesting that in the 17 years since they were happily reunited, we find in today's scripture, we learn in today's passage, chapter 50, that the brothers have lived in mounting fear and inescapable guilt. Growing fear. A fear that never would go away. And inescapable guilt for 17 years. Even though Joseph forgave them, you may recall in chapter 45, we saw that Joseph made their forgiveness more than words. Made their forgiveness about God because he grounded and rooted the forgiveness that he was extending to them for the way they had treated him. They, in fact, thought he was dead. You may recall in one audience that they had with Joseph, they described their family and they said, this is our youngest, his older brother, who is Joseph, his older brother is dead and no, no longer among us. Wow. They thought he was dead, he's yet alive, and he forgives them. And he grounds that forgiveness in God. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And he also made that forgiveness about the future. He talked about the future, how it was going to be bright and good, how they were going to be together. They were going to be that family that they should have always been. They were going to know that love that everyone in each and every family wants to know from the people in their family, from the people in their church, from the people in their neighborhood, from the people at work, from the people at school. We all want love and acceptance. And Joseph painted a picture of the future with that kind of bright goodness and mutual love. So let's read chapter 50, and we're going to read beginning at verse 15 to verse 21. When Joseph's brothers 
saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they went, they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. So now you have to understand the next words are Jacob's words. The Jacob that loved Joseph so much. Okay? The Jacob who is the patriarch. The patriarch who has just died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. For I, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. There it is a second time. Don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. In other words, I'm going to take care of everything. That's what Shelley's always asking me to do. <laughs> Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. She, by the way, takes care of me most of the time. All's well that ends well. Sometimes. A lot of the time it depends on us. We have to see it. We have to feel it. We have to own it. We have to give thanks for it. We have to realize it. We really have to take it in. Sometimes we don't. We take it for granted. We think it would have happened anyway. We think we deserve it. Why aren't we getting more? I don't know. There are a lot of things. Obviously, I'm acquainted with this sort of thing because I'm talking about it and I know what I'm talking about. But it's tragic here that this full reunion took 17 years uh, on top of another 22. That's 37 years since the dirty deed. They've been living with that guilt. And it's when the father dies. See, they think Jacob, because of his affection for Joseph, is a buffer. That uh, in a way, as long as Jacob's around, Joseph's not going to harm them. And so now that he has died, they fear Joseph in a way that they have been able to handle, but now are terrified. You know, forgiveness takes belief. We have to practice it. We have to accept it. We have to let it in. Let it assuage, let it comfort, let it touch our hearts. We have to realize the benefits of, 
of forgiveness. And sometimes we have to kind of chastise ourselves, you know? Take it to heart, John. Believe the Lord. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. He's good. He wouldn't tell you this unless it were real. We want to believe, don't we? I've even found that among believers, you would... (laughs) Really, isn't it kind of funny? Among believers, believers want to believe. And not all believers believe. And they don't all believe at the same time. And even when all the believers are together, sometimes it takes a believer to stand up and really believe so that all the other believers can believe. Fortunately for the brothers of Joseph, that believer is Joseph. Think about that. The man who suffered so much. Who could start his own Me Too movement. He's been through all of that. But he's been healed by the grace of God. He really has. And now he's ministering to those who've made him a victim. But he's no longer a victim because he's triumphed in the grace of God. And he has become the true believer. And now he's believing for his brothers. I find that astonishing. I find it energizing. I find it inspiring. It lifts my spirits and it energizes me in a way to think God can use me. Just as I hope that this morning, right now, you would be thinking God can use me. See, so often we're waiting for everyone else to get in line or come to bat or pick up the ball and throw it. And God's saying, you've got the ball right in your hand. You've got the bat on your shoulder. Go to the plate. Encourage those around you. Stand up for what you believe in. You own it. You be the true believer. Dare to believe. Forgive doubt. Feature God. And foster heart. Forgive doubt. We see this in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. Joseph has to help them. The brothers have not taken his forgiveness to heart. He's hoping for them because they can't forgive themselves, even though Joseph has forgiven them. I realize there's a real power indifference here. Joseph has all the power. They have no power. The more they're dependent on him, I guess with your mind traveling in those directions, sometimes uh, you're going to think, okay, now dad's gone. How easy would it be for him to remember all that we did and decide to take it out on us? 
But you see, they've got to believe in the forgiveness. They've got to believe in Joseph's word. They've got to believe it when Joseph said, God is in this. God has done this. It's no different that, that when you and I have to accept God's forgiveness, accept that we are covered in his grace, lavished, drowning, <laughs> you know, in his grace. But we often see God through the eyes of other people. And then the doubts that enter in when we look at God through people. <laughs> I've shared this a couple times over the years, but <clears throat> when I was a, a new believer, I couldn't believe that God would forgive me. I could quote First John 1. That was one of the early verses that I committed to memory, that I hid in my heart. You know, if we confess our sins... He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I would even pray that prayer, and yet I felt God was still upset with me. That God was ticked at me. That he was fuming. And it was horrible. Then I, would, I wouldn't go to church. I wouldn't go to my small group. I wouldn't get in, in touch with others. I didn't feel worthy. It would send this kind of chain reaction. Who knows, maybe the brothers of Joseph are talking to one another, feeding each other this junk. It happens even in the church. We feed and sow doubt and discouragement because we're doubting and discouraged. And we hope that the people that we sow that to will stand up and say, I'm going to believe for you, sister. I'm going to believe for you, brother. But we don't. We fall with them. We stumble with them. It's like a grass fire sometimes. So the brothers are all of one mind. But what happened to me? I don't, prayer, I don't remember how long it took. Every day seemed long. But I think God showed me that I was looking at God through the eyes of my father. Who when I blew it and had it coming, he'd give it to me. But then it wasn't over. You'd think if he gave it to me, The score was even. My time was served. My penalty paid. But it wasn't. Dad was still ticked. Dad was still fuming. Dad didn't like his son. Dad was disappointed in his son. And that gets down into your soul and you think you're good for nothing. You can never please Dad. You can never please God. Look at how perfect he is. We can be our own worst enemy. And so we read here their apology. Please forgive, note this, the transgression. The transgression that's one Hebrew word for sin. <clears throat> and your brother's sin, that's another separate Hebrew word for sin. For they did evil. To you. That's another word. 
that represents sin. Please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. So they are making this appeal. In other words, I have an advocate, and the advocate is my father, and my father is your father, but my father loved you more than me, but it's my father that loved you more than me that is speaking now and telling you to forgive me. That's pretty powerful. But you notice they add in, we who are the servants of your father and his God. So this is really a pretty powerful plea. Is it a good apology? I want to suggest to you it is not a good apology. First of all, I personally, and I'm not going to push this idea on you, but I do not think this is what Jacob told them to say. I think they are putting it in the mouth of Jacob. There's no record of Jacob ever speaking to them about this. There's no thought that Jacob even knew what they did to Joseph. And on top of that, Joseph brought his two boys at Jacob's request in to see him, and they spent a whole bunch of time together, just them, Joseph, Jacob, his father, and Joseph's two sons. And at that time, Jacob blessed his sons, and then he blessed Joseph. If he knew what his brothers had done, he would have told Joseph at that time, Joseph, I hope now you can forgive your brothers. Now, I'm not trying to pick on the brothers, but, you know, they have a, they have a habit of lying. And I think Joseph sees right through this. And I want you to understand this because I think this is so powerful. For Joseph, there's something bigger than the apology to make things right. You see, in our world today, forgiving another person, and we see this in social media, we see it around us depicted, we see it played out in the media. <clears throat> the condition of forgiveness is the strength, power, honesty, integrity, worth, if you will, value of your apology. Corporations and people have become very adept. They have handlers. They know how to make apologies in the media. They know how to do their mea culpa. Why? They don't really care about anything. They just don't want this to affect the bottom line. They don't want it to get in the way of business. They want to move on. So people know how to apologize. And yet, making a good apology can be the basis of forgiveness. But what I want you to see here is that as swell an apology as this is, doing the full mea culpa, I think Joseph realizes it's not the apology at all. The apology is a bad one, and it doesn't justify what they did. But that isn't why Joseph is healed. And that isn't why Joseph forgave them before, and it isn't why Joseph is going to forgive them now. 
And what I, what, what I want us to appreciate is that forgiveness is based not on the quality of an apology, because if it is a based on the quality of an apology, then mercy is based on justice and not on grace. And I don't think, quite frankly, that most of the wrongs that are committed to us, they hurt so bad that no apology or no justice is really out there to make things right. And that's why Christians, why believers, why you and me, we are in this unique, special, unparalleled, out-of-this-world situation in which we know grace that is out of this world. We know forgiveness that we never deserved. And we cannot resort to making forgiveness dependent upon an apology. We can't make forgiveness dependent upon a person's mea culpa. I hope they do, because it's good for their soul. You need to recognize what you did wrong. You're going to be warped and stunted as a person, if you don't realize it, when you hurt other people and own up to it. And you should do it because you want to help them know not only that you realize you hurt them, but that you realize you hurt them and you're not going to do that again. Because so often we hurt people out of that silly selfishness which thinks it's all about us and nobody else matters as much. No, the clue is this. Because you may be wondering, am I just pouring all of the gospel of the New Testament into this? No. The clue for me is that every time they start talking about what they did to Joseph... Remember when they thought Joseph didn't know what they were saying and he started weeping? Remember when Judah was so concerned about his father and his littlest brother, half-brother, Joseph's biological brother, Benjamin. He didn't want to see his father hurt. He was going to substitute his life for Benjamin's. And Joseph started weeping. And here again, he hears his brother doing a full mea culpa. Everything that you would want to hear. But he starts weeping. Not because he's happy to hear that, these are tears of joy or Now, I think he's weeping because he realizes his brothers, they're in a pit. They're enslaved. They're lost and locked up in guilt that he's been trying to free them of. He wants them to know the grace of God. That's the power of the gospel. That's the motivator in life. 
That's what makes you want to forgive others, even when they don't deserve it, or at least you and me and our sense of justice don't think they deserve it. We see a better future for them in Christ. If we don't see that, if it's all about the past, if it's about trying to go back and rectify that and somehow make it right, well, you're living in the wrong world. That world no longer exists. Here we are, they say in verse 18, your slaves. You think that's going to make Joseph happy? Not Joseph. He's not that kind of guy. He's not that kind of guy. We've watched him grow and develop. He's big-hearted. He wants more for his brothers. He has God. He wants them to have God. Seeing this breaks his heart. The best apologies, the sweetest versions of remorse that I have ever experienced. So this is slightly anecdotal. I have no scientific graphs or pie charts to back this up. But I do want to tell you that the apologies, the sweetest, most meaningful apologies... The expressions of remorse that I have experienced have come after I have forgiven somebody, after I have rebuilt a relationship with them. Not on the basis of, but afterward, you see? Because it frees them sometimes to talk about things that they're so ashamed of and embarrassed of that they can't even bring themselves, as they should, to say I'm sorry in a way that really hits home. But sometimes when they are given that kind of forgiveness and you move on, and you give it not because they deserve it, but because you didn't deserve it. You've been forgiven. You're breathing the air of grace. And so in that grace, you extend grace. And that grace enables things like this to happen that we're reading about this morning and turns us into Joseph's. It turns us into Josephs. We need to be Josephs in life. Or Josephines. Feature God, verses 19 and 20. Fear not, he says. Do not fear, for I am in the for am I in the place of God. In the, in the Greek translation of this verse, it says, Do not be afraid, for I am God's. In other words, God owns me. I belong to him. I'm his possession, so it's not my place. In other words, God's forgiven. The future is bright because of God. What really is profound to me is he says in verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God... And immediately I think of Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. But God meant it for good. 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We make our plans, but God determines the outcome. And the outcome, if it's a determination of God, it is a good, good outcome and determination. Joseph addressed all their fears. So now, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The words translated spoke kindly to them. It says he spoke into their hearts. The Hebrew word heart. In that same expression, that the words he comforted or reassured, the same words are used in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, Isaiah says. Speak tenderly, same expression. He spoke tenderly to them. Isaiah says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. She's received from the Lord double for all her sins. Do you know what the word in Hebrew means that we translate forgive? It's a concrete action. It means to take up or to carry or to lift off. Imagine you have this 50-pound sack of feed on your back at all times. And finally, someone lifts it off. That's forgiveness. It's a beautiful picture. This uh, last week on Twitter, somebody tweeted this. I believe in grace, and I think there is enough for everyone. Can someone help me define grace with brevity, but without churchy language? There were probably, I didn't actually count them, but it just went on and on. There were responses. There must have been 150 or more. But I went through so many, and I chose out, all. so many were good, but I chose out some that I think we need to hear this morning that I think are very true of grace. Grace is treating someone like you see who they are becoming instead of always the ways they aren't there yet. A second chance that never runs out, that's grace. A second chance that never runs out. Grace is being given what we need, whether or not we deserve it. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. Grace is... Generous and welcoming acceptance, no matter who you are or what you've done. Grace is having however many chances you need to get it right over and over again. Grace is the possibility that the future is not simply the sum of of our pasts. When you look at other people, even other people in the church, do you, do you know what the name of our church is? 
Do you know what the, let me put this in more biblical language. Do you know what we call ourselves? Because that's what a church is. It's the assembly. It's the gathering together. We call ourselves grace. Grace gathering. Grace communing, community. I want us to show that grace to Visalia, but I want us to start with each other. I want us to look at other people and see each other as God wants to make us that better version and to be patient for that better version and to support and encourage that better version. That's grace at work. That's seeing grace. When people make mistakes or do things wrong, we need to be the, the true believers. And we need to be a Joseph at times like that. This table is the Lord's Supper. Again and again and again and again, every time, every time, every time, it reminds us of one thing. It reminds us of grace. It reminds us of forgiveness. It reminds us of second chances. It reminds us that our future is not the sum of all our pasts. It reminds us that this day holds better things and so does tomorrow and the day after. It reminds us that we matter. We matter to God because He loves us so much that He gave His one and only Son. And that Son is represented in this bread and in this cup. This bread is His body broken for us, and this cup is the new covenant in His blood. A new covenant based on a new sacrifice. A new future. This is not just one of several or the first of others. This is the only one. It is the new covenant. It is your new standing, your new relationship, your new identity before God in Jesus Christ. You are someone very important because of this cup and because of this bread. And that's all true by virtue of God's grace that comes from His great love that is expressed in the most unfathomable act of love the world will ever know. The sending of His one and only Son not just to us, but even to the cross among us and unto the resurrection and new life, which is what we celebrate this morning. 
The power of the bread and the cup is not in the person that holds it or dispenses it. It's not in the power of this church or that church. It's, it's in the power of the truth of the gospel and what Jesus Christ actually did and accomplished for you and me. This represents that. The power is in your believing it. The power is in you saying this bread and this cup means that in Jesus I find the truth of who I am and I'm forgiven for a past that I regret and the whole future is open to me because I'm his child. That's how you accept the bread and the cup. We need that reminder every day. All of you drink it. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now I want to remind you we have the uh, privilege and opportunity. Oh, yes, come and pass the cups to the center. Details, details. <laughs> That's where the devil is. Thank you, guys. You too can do this, by the way, if you'd like to ever help out, become a cup picker-upper. <laughs> we'll put you to work. There are lots of ways to serve in, in the Lord's work. I was going to say, we have the privilege to give to the Deacons Fund. It's totally dedicated to help, helping people who, who turn to the Lord and come to the church for help when they need a, a hand up. And those within our own church family who have fallen on a difficult, uh, hard time and they need a helping hand. So if you're able to give, give and give generously. But if, uh, if you need a helping hand, let us help you. Let's all stand. Every week I, I know the joy of the Lord. His word takes me places I didn't expect to go. And there are insights and it's a delight and you become thrilled about the gospel and God and the good things that can happen and it starts to kind of energize and leak out of you and it, in, in, it enters into all of your relationships in all the different areas of your life. And I try to pass that on to you so you can be delighted too. So I say to you, may God bless you. May you know his power. May you know his joy. May you have a bounce in your step because of the hope that you have because of Jesus Christ. And you belong to him. God bless you. Make it a great day.